questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. The current ruling system has falsified history. What if the old world was invaded by another country which is located in a place which we don't know? What if they came here and destroyed everything, and then deleted our history and removed our technology? Could this be the reason why there are so many lies in history and science, so that no one finds out that they are living in a land which we do not know about? The people in power control the media and the education system in the world, and they choose what to report, how, and when to report it. Researchers have found evidence showing that history is a lie, or a great part of it was fraudulently staged and organized. Let's peel the onion of lies, shall we? You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. David Ewing Jr. has traveled to over 2,500 cities and places worldwide and has done much historical research for over 20 years, acquiring great knowledge of world history. And this is a shortened version of his biography because I would rather let David tell his story himself. And directly from Manchester, England, I'd like to welcome David Ewing Jr. Hello, David, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm fine, thank you very much. Well, David, I've spent the past few days reading a number of your books, six to be specific, but you have written many more. But there are two common traits I find most interesting. Number one, history is a lie. And number two, the number 19. But before you address those and you answer those questions, give us your background, your backstory, and how you came to your conclusions that history is a lie. And by the way, for the record, I don't think this will be your last time on this show, because I think we're going to touch the tip of the iceberg today. Okay. Now, when I traveled around the world, um, basically it's around the world, um, I went to many different cities. Like somebody can say they've been to the United States and they can say they've been to New York, but there's so many cities in in the United States. So um, uh, I always wanted to go to many cities. Um, I don't know why. I like going to cities. So Russia is another big country. Some people have been to two or three cities there, but um, they can say they've been to Russia, but, um, you know, it's like it's a big place. So is China, so is Europe. So when I was traveling around the world, um, what I found very strange is that in every country, basically, they have different histories. So the thing is, um, wherever I went, um, I noticed um, there was conflicts, local conflicts in many places. And it was all about history. Like, um, the thing is, when I went to China, um, I went to cinema there with um, uh, with um, somebody who's Chinese, and um, they invited me to cinema. We, we were um, having a, a meeting. It was to do with business, but um, at that time, this is um, 20 or 25 years ago, there was not much to do there at, at that time. Shanghai was, um, it was in Shanghai, and in Shanghai, basically, um, you know, um, half the skyscrapers weren't there. So when I went there, there was um, a movie there, and it was just focusing on World War Two. It was basically boring for me, for my standards. And it was just talking about Japan did this, Japan did that, history, this, that. Yeah, so um, I, I got a negative impression of Japan. But then when I'm next door in Japan, yeah, I mentioned it to somebody. And then um, they were turning around and saying, oh, the Chinese have fabricated their history, this, that, everything. And I thought, ah, okay. So then um, you're in Korea next door, and then um, they turn around and say, oh, don't you know the Chinese fabricated their history and the Japanese, blah, blah, blah. So then um, when you go to Russia, the Russians say, ah, um, this is world history. This is the correct version. 
And um, they'll say, um, you know, the Europeans are telling lies. Well, um, they'll focus more on um, Germany because um, Germany is the nearest Western neighbor. And then um, if you're in England, they'll turn around and say the French, the Germans, the telling lies, etc. So it just goes on and on. Oh, if you're in the Middle East, yeah, they're just going to say, hey, Europe's telling lies in the West. The Americans are telling lies. And um, things like this, it just goes on. Then you've got the American Indians. They're going to say, hey, um, half the history is a lie. Then you've got the African-Americans and and um, they're going to say, hey, this history is a lie. That history is a lie. And it, and it just goes on and on and on. And then you turn around and think, what the hell is going on? Yeah, it's like um, from... From from what I've been, what what I, what what we learn in school in England or in America or in Australia, it, it, um, you know, people in other pl- places around the world are learning something totally different. So then it, it makes you question. But um, I started questioning when I was young, a lot younger. It's like um, I, I, you could say Judeo-Christian, you know, that's what many people call it in England. But um, I went to a school. And in that school, um, it, they basically gave you a Jewish background education. Um, um, they called them Oxbridge schools, um, you know, um, schools linked to Oxford University. So I, ha- I had a very lucky background um, for my education. You could practically say it's the best education in Europe or in England. So I studied for, for um, five years there. And um, the thing is, um, history meant, meant a lot, even at that time. It was exciting. And then, um, you know, I, I read the Bible by the time I was 15, and then um, I was invited to um, read the Quran by um, those um, people from the Middle East um, um, when I was 16, and um, they showed it me. And when I read it, um, I thought, hey, this is um, totally read- uh, mentioning a totally different history. So after that, I thought, I'll have a look at Buddhism, I'll, and um, I'll, I'll have a look at the um, Vedas, things like that. I had a look at a lot more and then I thought, hey, we've got a bit of a mess. And then I started having a look at a few of the histories over the years, um, different countries. And then um, I thought, hey, it's a total mess. Yeah, and then the war in the Balkans happened. Um, you know, Serbia was, um, you know, demonized in England uh, and, and in America and in Europe. The Serbs are doing this, that um, in the in the 90s. And so when I first met the first ever Serbian, I met them in Frankfurt. So I met them in Frankfurt, and he was he was just a normal gentleman. But um, the thing is, um, when I met him, I just assumed that he, um, you know, that he's some psycho killer or something, you know, because we were told, um, you know, in the Balkans, the Serbs and um, the Russians. So it's like um, some type of some type of fear that that you have. And um, the thing is. Um, you know, when he started talking and everything, and then he started explaining his point of view and then the history that he was given. So it made me go a lot more into history. And then um, I found a lot more history. And then over the years, I have to explain it to many different people. And so to my friends, especially. And when they keep on repeating, asking questions, it gets boring. And then um, in the 90s, um, the Soviet Union collapsed. When that collapsed, um, um, you could practically say half these communist countries and other countries, something big happened in Eastern Europe. And when they collapsed, um, mysteriously we found there's more Muslims in Europe and um, in the world than we imagined. There were um, these Muslim republics in the Soviet Union and in Yugoslavia, and um, a new type of war um, was visible uh, in Europe, um, especially in the Balkans, Bosnia, Kosovo, Albania, Macedonia, Serbia, Croatia. And they were all fighting about religion. And at the same time, um, the war kicked off with the Armenians, Abkhazia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Russia, Chechnya, Dagestan, on the borders of Russia, southern Russia, you know, go, going, going, south, going south of Volgograd. And then there is um, Central Asia going south from Orenburg um, in Russia. It's like the entire region's entirely Muslim. And um, nobody heard about it while the wars were happening in the 90s in the Balkans, but there were wars in Central Asia, especially in Tajikistan. And um, the, folk, um, the central focus, people said, is from Afghanistan. Yeah. 
So the thing is, um, it came to the public spotlight. So now the thing is, inside Russia, something big was going on. Yeah, that uh, many people did not believe the official history. Yes, that the Soviet Union suddenly collapsed and the church was going around saying, hey, there used to be a church building over here. So, and um, there was a professor there in Moscow State University. He's a mathematician. He's got nothing to do with history, but he studied a lot of history. And then he noticed mathematical codes in history. And he, he turned around and saw... You, you mean Anatoly Fomenko? Yeah, Professor Anatoly Fomenko. He's done a lot of work. It's so deep that um, somebody has to have um, a, a, a big historical background to understand it. It's like he went through so many original manuscripts and there were many people involved. You could say probably up to a thousand people because um, there were p uh, people who were cooperating with him from other universities, from other places in the world saying, hey, there is this discrepancy, that discrepancy, this problem, that problem with these manuscripts here and everything. So what he did, um, he got all the work together and it, he showed the duplicates, showing um, from country to country, like from France, Germany, Poland, Russia, Austria, United States, you know, Italy, he, uh, um, Turkey. And he showed that um, different nations copied history. And, it, and he showed it and he showed um, there was a mathematical connection. It's like, for example, if you and me, we sit down and we say we are going to create the history of Antarctica. Nobody lives here, but um, we'll now build cities here and we're going to bring lots of people here. So, uh, so that then in three, four hundred years time, the people will actually think that this is history. So, it, so he, he showed how nation states formed. Yes, and he showed, um, you know, how they um, just invented the history. And they copied it from an, from the actual uh, from another global history that actually existed. Yes, and um, some people call this civilization Tartaria. Some people have decided to call it that because there are some maps from Europe that showed that um, there was a civilization named Tartaria focusing on Eastern Europe and that that had a global impact. Um, but Professor Anatoly Fomenko has shown that this civilization was also to some people known as the Kingdom of Israel. Yes, now this is something that um, um, many people don't realize. Now the entire Old Testament in the Bible actually um, is copied from that history of the previous civilization, which is only three, two, three hundred years ago. So um, you can call it the Kingdom of Israel if you want, of, um, which had King David and King Solomon. Now, um, there is people who are from the Middle East who would like to call it the Arabic civilization or the Caliphate. It's their choice what title, Tartaria, Kingdom of Israel, or the Caliphate, because it goes through the same history, but um, it's been duplicated all over the world. So there was a, there was a, um, a global one world system just um, a few centuries ago, and it collapsed only about, about two, three or four hundred years ago that it started collapsing about 400 years ago, and then it totally collapsed and um, disappeared only in the last uh, um, 200 years. Something has happened. <clears throat> yes. So now the thing is, there is many mathematical numbers in, 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 in the forgery of history that you will find mathematical patterns. If you are inventing history, then you will try to make it balance between one country or another, to equal it. Same like when you do algebra, something has to equal our balance. Or, or if you are doing um, accountancy, um, you know, you've got to show, you know, the money coming in, the money going out, it must balance. Yes? Or the Inland Revenue or the IRS in the United States, they're going to come down on you and say, hey, what's going on? This is fraud over here. Yes? So um, the thing is, they used mathematics to balance everything. Yeah? Which is normal. You know, if I'm going to invent history, I would like the story to balance. So they used mathematics, and they're still using that mathematics today in inventing history for control. Yes? So now there's many numbers there. You could find the number 7, 11, 33. People are talking about these things. But the thing is, um, when you go into the number 7, it's like the 77, or there's 11, 22, 33. You could say there's 33, but 33 is a multiple of 11. But now a very big prime number is 19. And the thing is, 19 also represents the alpha and the omega. 
So uh, this is very important because it represents the alpha and the omega. For some reason, 19 stands out more than any other number in the, in the fraudulent falsified history. You'll find it in the data of Napoleon Bonaparte. You'll find it in the Crusades, like, for example, they say that Frederick Barbarossa um, um, marched from Europe through the Balkans, through Belgrade. He had um, 190,000 soldiers, 190000, you know, a multiple of 19. So it's like um, when you see these things, then um, you can figure out where history has been falsified. So um, what I did is I wrote my books in, in a simple way because I noticed that the way that people are writing books, that how we write them like when you do a master's degree, you have to do um, a thesis in English, we call it, or an assignment. You do a very big one in, in many subjects. And the way they make you do these assignments yeah, in university for a master's degree, it's very good because you have to do the research and you have to show you've got the research skills. But now when you actually write down your thesis, what they've done is that um, people are putting references on the back. Now, instead of references inside the actual thesis, let's say um, when you, you've got a textbook or a book. So now anybody who's reading any books, history books, yeah, many people are not going to check references. And the references always come back to the same historical documents that we cannot even verify in history books. So this is the biggest problem with history books. Yes? Anyway, th that gives you um, a basic outline of... Um, what I did. And so I made my book simple, yes, so that um, people can go and check things very easily saying, hey, hey, David's just said this. I can check it in Google in two minutes. So this is the reason why uh, I did my book in that way, so that people can check something. Instead of, um, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of books out there now who are claiming, hey, I've got the truth here or something. This is very important or special information. But the thing is, you know, people can't check many things. There's so many videos online of um, world history, mud floods, Tartaria, conspiracies. And people are going to put photographs there. They're going to show quotes here and there. But um, it, it, it's, you can't check many things. That um, it, it, It's a nightmare for people to go and check things. So many people are going to say history is a lie, this, that. But they haven't got people thinking. But as far, um, the way I've written my books, from what I've seen from my, my feedback, is that anybody who's read any of my books turn around and thinks, whoa, what the hell's going on here? There's something wrong here. That people, people, people can just feel it straight away. I, I don't know. Did you feel that straight away? There's something wrong? S something happened with my, uh, my headphones. One second, please. Can you hear? Okay, here we go. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, good. I can hear you. Yes, I did. Yes. I did. But I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment, and I appreciate what you just said, that instead of having the the references in the back, because nobody checks them, you put them after yeah. almost after every paragraph. But if I'm not mistaken, a lot of that comes from Google searches, correct? Right. I will give you an example now. Okay, but hold on. Now, be before you say that, I just want to say, Google yes. is known... To completely, I mean, if you if you make any search right now on Google, it's going to tell you, oh, we found yeah. two billion items. But once you start looking, one, yeah. two, three, four, then in the end, you only see about maybe a few hundred. So how do we know that the links that you included are not being curated by the controllers? Okay. Yes. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you something now. So what I have done is this. Like, for example, there is the book with the alpha and the omega code. Yes. Now, the alpha and the omega code. Now, for example, I've put on the scene for September the 11th. Now, September the 11th is a very serious thing to um, half the people around the world who are thinking, what the hell is going on? So now the thing is, um, you can open up a history book. Yes. I have a look at different opinions. So now what I did for September the 11th. Yes. I put down the major, the major news and the major history that, that um, the people in power are showing to the world. Like, for example, what is the New York Times saying? What, um, what is the Washington Post saying? What is um, ABC News saying? What is CNN News saying? What is the BBC? Because this is going to be the official history for them, the people in power. Because this is what they're using now for fact checkers. For example, on Facebook, if it's in the New York Times, 
and it's been verified by um, a politician in Washington, D.C., or the Washington Post, or the BBC, or France 24, yes, we accept it. Um, if it's by um, somebody else, we don't. So now, official historians in school, we're talking about for the average person like you and me, we are affected by what they're, what they're going to be saying in the New York Times. We are affected by what is going to be on, on a dot gov, um, gov website. So what I've done is I've put those major websites that people can go on. So um, the thing is, I've actually checked um, uh, um, the websites myself. Then um, I actually take a photograph to show that um, I haven't modified anything that people can actually go and check things themselves. And that's what people have done. Yes. So uh, I don't. Uh, I don't. Uh, um, I have picked and choose websites that I'm not going to choose um, a source. I'm not going to choose the source that is not widely available. I'm putting on the sources that the people in power are showing to you and me. Yes. Like for example, in in um, Europe and Australia, in Europe and Australia, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Telegraph, they're big in this side of the world. For your side of the world, the New York Times, the, the New York Post, Washington Post. Um, so I put on the major sources so that people can go out there and check and say, hey, these people are, are um, they're, they're showing this history with this type of mathematics. So, so I, I've, I've made sure that, um, you know, I put on the sources that they are showing to the world. But don't all those yes, sources get their... It did. I believe, through the years, I've found that the source of most news worldwide comes from one entity, a so-called cooperative nonprofit agency, which is owned by most, allegedly owned by most of the, the news agencies around the world. And we know that the Rothschilds are behind it. I'm talking about the Associated Press. Here in the United States, for example, a lot of news, uh, if you watch the news on TV or even written they say we do not confirm this unless it comes from AP or the Associated Press. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, you mentioned the Rothschilds. So now, um, the other books I've not sent you um, uh, about Napoleon Bonaparte, especially. Now, um, the the thing is, um, I'll, I'll 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 send you them so that you could have a look. But um, the history of Napoleon Bonaparte is full of nineteen this and nineteen that in the official history, that we cannot even verify um, the existence of the Rothschild banking family. Yes, the history of the Rothschild banking family in the 19th century, that they were supposed to have made money at the Battle of Waterloo, but the Battle of Waterloo is full of 19 this and 19 that with the Duke of Wellington. Um, I'll, I'll send you um, um, this book um, later, but sure. the thing is, um, somebody's done that on purpose, that they're advertising these so-called Jewish bankers, and they're not telling you what is the meaning of the word Jew or Jewish. Yes, I've put it down in, in my books. The meaning of the word Jew is um, Jewish for many centuries. Or Judica. refers to the Vatican. Yes, the Vatican, Jew. Yes. So it referred to the Vatican. Now, the thing is, um, um, the, the children of Israel were known as the children of Israel. Now, the thing is, for example, the Quran is a book that, um, you know, especially opposes the, um, the global world order that um, is trying to establish the world order now. Um, it totally opposes it and it differentiates between Israel, yes, and Judah. It, it differentiates that it turned around and says Judah are the people who, who have done, um, are a group of people who've done something wrong. It doesn't say they are a race or a tribe, but it says that they are people who would, who've done wrong things and that they should change. That the Quran is, is, is mentioning these people saying, hey, they've got these plots, they've done these plots, etc. Now, when it talks about Israel, it talks about the, the children of Israel. The Quran differentiates. The Bible doesn't mention this. Now, the Quran actually states that the children of Israel are the children of Israel. They're like a... A, a group from a family. Now, modern Judaism actually shouldn't be called modern Judaism because it's supposed to be the religion of the children of Israel. It is supposed to be, yes? So, th so that's why the meaning has changed, same like the meaning of the word American, maybe three, four hundred years ago, would probably mean the natives. Today, American, 
means um, something else. So the meaning of the word Jew and Jewish has changed. Yes? So um, when they say Jewish bankers in the 18th, 19th, 17th century, yes, that refers to the Vatican because I could not find, and, and even official professors, yeah, um, that many people don't even pay attention to, have turned around and said, hey, we can't seem to find these Jewish bankers in any of the documents, even, it, even in the official history, we can't find no proof. So why are we mentioning it and talking about it? We cannot find any single documentation to show that these Rothschilds existed that made, you know, uh, for that time, billions of dollars from the Napoleonic Wars and the battles of Waterloo and the others. We can't find it. So why why the creation of of the Jews or Judica? And also, when you think about that, uh, there's the creation of, you know, stories. For example, Kasaria. Kasaria was a region... In, 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 you know, Russia in the past. Is that not true? Yes. Okay. Now, the thing is, I'll give you an example. Because many people have mentioned Khazaria, then they talk about, um, you know, the Khazarians and their Talmud. Now, the thing is, we, we were told in history that ancient Rome existed. Yes? Now, ancient Rome existed, but if you have a look at Rome 400 years ago, only 400 years ago, Rome, including the fields in the countryside, yeah, we're talking about in them days people did farming and they're in the countryside, the Rome entire region, the entire region with the fields only had 10,000 people. 10,000 people, and they're telling us ancient Rome existed before then. Yes. Um, I'll have to send you a book about this. Yes, that many people are questioning. Yes, they're saying ancient Rome existed. Here are the artifacts. Here are the buildings. So then they mention the empire of the Mongols. Yes. And um, in the same way, we turn around and say, hey, where is this ancient Rome? That uh, Most historians could not show, yes, all these buildings of ancient Rome and anything else until 400 years ago. Yes. And then um, they've even written it because we don't have... Um, we don't have a problem with these documents. These documents are only two, three hundred years old. Um, just after the Renaissance, where they've written, they actually claim we've rediscovered ancient Rome at the end of the Renaissance. They said ancient Rome was lost for a thousand years. All the Roman documents, all the evidence for ancient Rome. So now they turn around and told us that there was a Mongol Empire and its capital was called um, Sarai Berke. Yes? Or, or Sarai Bak. And the thing is, we can't seem to find this capital. It doesn't seem to exist. Now, um, um, the Russians today, they've built a city somewhere in um, um, southern, southern Russia, European Russia, and, this, and uh, they've built it. It's like Disneyland and saying, hey, the Mongols were here, the capital was here. We, we can't seem to find it. So um, uh, uh, this will explain Khazaria to you. Then they've turned around and said, hey, that the Arabs had a mega caliphate. It was based on the city of Baghdad. And then we can't seem to find the historical Baghdad. And then when you read the history books, they say, oh, everything was totally destroyed by the Mongol barbarians. And then ancient Rome, oh, everything was totally destroyed by the German barbarians, etc., and the Aleman people who were fighting against the church, etc., etc., they go on. So now to Khazaria. Yes, there is a city in Russia, in Russia today called Khazan. Yes, um, or Kazan, Khazan. So now um, people turn around and say these Khazan Jews. So now if we went to the entire region, Professor Anatoly Fomenko pointed out, and he even did maps of it to show the distribution, that in, in this entire Khazarian region, yes, all we found is Arabic coins with Arabic writing. So these are Khazars and they're Jews and they've got Arabic writing on their coins. And then if you go to the city of the Khazars today, known as Khazan or Kazan, yes, which nobody talks about. And on the maps, they show the Khazars as further south. But if we go to that entire region of the Khazars in the south, yeah, what do we see? Chechnya. Yeah, Chechnya. And they're supposedly Muslims. Yeah, and then if you go to Kazan city, um, that's supposed to be... Um, a Muslim city too. So they, um, when people talk about Khazaria, yeah, um, you know, um, Anatoly Fomenko showed uh, a bit more of the history to show there's something suspicious. In the same way, um, 
Um, for example, many people don't know. Yeah, um, ninety percent of of, um, of the people who follow um, Judaism or who are called Jewish today. Yes, ninety percent of these so-called Jewish people spoke Arabic until the 18th century. Yes, and um, the, yes, ninety percent they spoke Arabic. They wrote in Arabic. Apart from um, a few of them in Europe, they had um, not one language like like some of them spoke Yiddish. Others spoke um, it, that's in Germany, but they're a minority, and some of them spoke French in France, or um, they spoke um, old Slavic in um, Poland and in in Russia. But um, it's strange that they were speaking Arabic. And then, as far as we can see, um, um, the, the so-called Jewish people were speaking Arabic for at least two thousand years. And if we follow official history, two thousand years, there's a um, there's a man uh, uh, who came for the lost sheep of Israel, and the lost sheep are speaking Arabic, and they're writing in Arabic, and most of them lived in Spain. Yes, um, the majority of the Jews lived in Spain. Yes, um, one thousand five hundred years ago. We're talking about eighty percent of them. Yes, um, the majority of the, of the Jewish people. And um, these people, they spoke Arabic, yes? But today in history, they say this was an Arab civilization. There is no evidence that it ever was an Arab civilization. It, it seems like it was a children of Israel, not modern Judaism, a children of Israel civilization who spoke Arabic. So now if Jesus Christ came for the lost sheep of Israel, it doesn't make sense that he came in the deserts of the Middle East. <laughs> so, so where does the Hebrew language come from? Ah, uh, the Hebrew language. This is in my new book. I should have, uh, um, not the new book, um, another new book I did um, two months ago. It's very shocking. Now, you will be surprised, but, but uh, nobody spoke um, Hebrew language, yes, until the 20th century. And then um, they didn't even speak it fluently until the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, which is very shocking, yes? And then the first Hebrew dictionary, they started compiling it only after 1880s. Yes, and it was done by a man called Eliezer ben Yehuda, who's creating the first Hebrew dictionary. And he had a committee of his men, you know, who were helping him do research. Yeah, and he came from um, the Baltics, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, from that region. And then um, he went to live in, um, at that time it was called British Palestine. He went to live there and he thought, hey, I'm going to create a Hebrew dictionary. And um, he said, I, I want to create a Hebrew language. Yes, and um, he started teaching his children. Um, his children were amongst the first people to learn this Hebrew language. Yes, and then um, the thing is, um, what he did, you can find photographs of him online compiling the Hebrew dictionary with his committee and all his friends, yes, who were helping him. Obviously, he was being financed, and he was a humanist. A humanist is important because most of the humanists, yeah, were working for the Vatican, after the Renaissance. Almost all of them, basically, were working for the Vatican. So now um, this guy comes along and he's compiling a Hebrew dictionary. He opens up the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Hebrew Bible. He opens it up. And um, do you know what he finds? People don't know the meaning of these Hebrew words. This is 1880, not today. So if you were alive in 1880 and you opened up the Hebrew Bible, you won't know what it means. But you'll say, hey, there's an English translation at the time, and a French one, and a German one. But, but if you had a look at the English, French, German translations, at that time, they were all different. It's because people were guessing the meanings. So everybody said to Eliza ben Yehuda, and they asked him questions, saying, how do you know what the meaning of these words are in Hebrew, in the Mishnah, the Talmud, and um, the Hebrew Bible? He gave an answer. And this answer, you could find it, um, you could find it in Wikipedia, it's in Haaretz. The Israeli, one of Israel's national newspapers. This is official history in Israel that he, he's actually confirmed. And he said, ah, I know the meaning of these words because these words aren't actually Hebrew. They're actually Arabic, but they've got a new design, a new design. Um, the Hebrew letter is just a new design. You know, I could design the English alphabet in a new way. So he actually explained, hey, uh, we know the meaning of these words in the Mishnah, the Talmud and everything. And so what what he did was he added new words and uh, him and his committee and they changed many words and they created a language called Hebrew, which is now spoken today. 
Like, for example, this word is actually in the Old Testament. It says, Moses came from Mount Sinai, yes, with a message from God known as the Torah. And the Torah is actually in the Hebrew words in the Old Testament. It says the Torah was actually called the Quran. It actually says this in the Old Testament. It says Moses came with the Quran in his head. It says it was shining on his head. So now they've actually changed the meaning of that word, you know, the Hebrew linguists the humanists and their committee, and have changed the meaning. So today, if you open up, open up the Hebrew Bible, I'll look at the translations, it will say he came with rays of light on his head, the light of God. But that word, the light, it, um, if you pronounce it in modern Hebrew, is the word Quran. So Moses came with the Quran. This is very sh shocking information one. And another thing is, we're told that the word Quran means shining light. But who said this is the original meaning? Because they've already changed the meaning when him and his committee sat down and they decided what the words were. And then he actually says, hey, we've got lots of words. We've added them from the Palestinians, this, that, to create a full Hebrew language. Because the Hebrew in, in the Old Testament and the Mishnah and the Talmud is incomplete. Uh, but these words are all Arabic. He's, he's practically said this himself. Him, uh, um, and um, there's photographs of him um, compiling the dictionary with Arabic books. Let me ask you this, David, because no. I'm thinking what you're saying. Yeah. Somebody's trying to erase languages. Take Franco, for example, in Spain. I mean, before he came along, yeah. there were dialects, you know, my Catalan, Valencia, Valencian, uh, Galician, Basque, Andalusian, which is, was more or less like Arabic. And then Franco wanted to replace the original culture, the language and history of the people. Then he could create a new Spain that he wished to have. Is this what's been happening throughout history? Yes. Same thing in Germany and in Italy? Yes, as you've noticed, this information is in my books. It's not just Germany, Italy, it's in China. We can't find people who spoke modern Mandarin 150 years ago, or what they call Putonghua. We can't find it. We can't find people who spoke Japanese um, 100 years ago. We can't find people who spoke modern Korean 100 years ago. We can't find people who spoke... Um, um, Sanskrit 150 years ago. It's actually very shocking that, um, for example, um, Sanskrit, yeah, um, the thing is, um, it's, it's in the Indian newspapers in India, in the universities, they know this, they say, hey, that um, the, um, the Jesuits and the um, colonialists and other people, they knew Sanskrit when they came here as invaders, but even we didn't know it. This is um, very shocking information. Yes. And then, um, for example, they call them pundits in India, the people who went out saying, we know some things that are in the Vedas. Now, when the East India Company was based in Calcutta and the British, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese and all these people were in India, they created a system called the pundit system. And these people, um, these are the priests in India. And um, they were sending them throughout the Indian subcontinent into Tibet. Believe it or not, they were basically all employed as, um, you know, corporate employees. And these companies were registered in Holland and Britain. And uh, at that time, they were registered. There's another strange thing that people don't realize. In, um, the authorities in Holland spoke French. The authorities in England spoke French. They were using French. Yes? Um, not modern French, um, a bit older French. So now you've mentioned um, Catalan and, and General Franco. So now one that is Catalonia, Qatar. And then they say the Qatars, Qatar, Qatar, Qatar. Yes. So the thing is, Anatoly Fomenko, he said something which sounds strange and sounds unbelievable at first. He says that the Qatars, um, the Qatars in um, Europe that are in Catalonia, Barcelona, that region in southern France, you know, um, south from Lyon in France, all the way to, um, you know, north of Valencia. I've been to that region. And um, they say that now there's less, but especially in Catalonia. They say that region was the Qatars. Yeah, Qatars. And um, uh, Fomenko, he shows that these people, they migrated from Russia. Now, people will say, what is he talking about? He sounds like a Russian nationalist. No, even in the official history, they couldn't hide it. The Goths came from Eastern Europe, the Visigoths came, and they went to Spain. They came from Eastern Europe somewhere, Attila the Hun. There was a, um, a big migration 
that's coming from Eastern Europe. And they say the Goths, the barbarians, they invaded the Roman Empire and then they totally ransacked, ransacked it and overran it. Yeah. So, so the thing is, Franco was one of them who's getting rid of the languages. But now we have a very serious question and a serious problem. These so-called Latin American countries that are all speaking Spanish, if the Spaniards couldn't speak Spanish 150 years ago, where did the Spanish language come from? That all these nation states like Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Uruguay, Venezuela, they're teaching everybody in school this language. So we've got a, we've got a problem with the history of um, um, the so-called um, Spanish empires that went to the United, United States as well. Um, they had the Inquisition in the United States, the Spanish Inquisition, um, and um, they went to Mexico. So were they speaking Spanish? Where did that come from then? How from the from the Spanish church? Mexico. Where did that come from? Excuse from the me? where did that come? The Spanish come from the from the priests that came to this area of the world, convert or die, basically. Right now, the, now the convert and die things. Now, um, um, before um, before that, let me see now for, for the Spanish language. One, the modern Spanish language. What I'm trying to say is, we cannot find it in Spain. We find it in Latin America being enforced while Spain was still in civil war and they still haven't got the language out for the whole country. And by the way, just, just to so put things pers in perspective, <laughs> David, did civil war happen in the 1930s, not too long ago? Yes. But, yeah, but um, they've already introduced um, Spanish in many of the um, nation states in South America. Right. But um, Spain still isn't speaking Spanish. Um, half of, more than half of Spain could not speak Spanish. So how did the Latin Americans learn Spanish? It seemed like it seemed like saying, "Hey, um, what do you call it? Um, the French invade Latin America." Yes. Well, some and, people um, might say, uh, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but some people might say, "Well, if you go back to the times of quote unquote Columbus, some people say that he was a manufactured character." But you know, the kingdom of Isabel uh, and in Philip and Felipe, uh, the the kingdom of Castile and Castilla, and that's where the Spanish came from, according to historians. That's what they're going to say. But um, if you have a look at Latin America, you will find that there's many buildings there that seem very old. Not only those buildings, but um, we've got um, Machu Picchu that shows that mining was done in Latin America. Machu Picchu is just one site in, in my books, but you will, you're going to find hundreds of sites um, like that throughout Latin America, which are like step mountains. And that shows that people have been going to Latin America before. It's ridiculous to say that um, nobody went to went to the um, you know uh, Americas until um, Columbus went there. And even the story of Columbus doesn't make sense. That's a total fraud. Yes, it, it, it just totally doesn't make sense. We've got some maps, like the Piri Race map they show from Istanbul. Yes, for example. Um, that shows that um, the coastline of Latin America, they already knew it in the 15th century. Have you heard of that map? I certainly have. Okay, now, but many people have not investigated Istanbul. So I thought I'll investigate Istanbul. Now, the British and the French and the Americans occupied Istanbul. Seemed like they occupied Baghdad and Afghanistan. It seemed like me coming into your house, I throw you out and I'm inside your house. Then I'm turning around and saying, hey, I just found this map inside your house. And this map is many centuries old. So now, we're, so now when the European occupation happened in Istanbul, um, just after World War I, they mysteriously found this Piri Race map. So now this Piri Race map is under question. So we got a serious problem with that. Nobody's mentioned this, actually. I think possibly Fomenko's team has mentioned it. Apart from that team, nobody else. Why do you think they're also... Speaking of the Spaniards, now let's talk about the Germans. What do you think they're, I mean, obviously Canada, uh, you have a lot of Germanic migration to this part of the world in, in, in the United States, but Mexico, South America, especially in Brazil and Argentina, and Argentina, millions of Germans there. Yes, and in Brazil. Yes, and the thing is, um, if you have a look at the languages that they spoke, um, the thing is that um, they didn't even speak German. Hansrick. Yes. And um, but now we've got a problem with Hunsrick as well. Many people have not checked. Hunsrick, yes, was actually standardized, like a, a group of people like you and me sitting down. 
and saying, hey, we're going to create the Hunsrück language and then we're going to teach it to the German people um, in Argentina and Brazil. So that's what they did. So even Hunsrück is not the original. There is an original before this. Yes. What about? So I checked this and I thought, oh my god! <laughs> you know, it's so interesting reading your books, David, because you're throwing a lot of buckets of cold water. You're changing paradigms. You've traveled the world, but you know, I remember visiting Morocco and seeing all those alleged Roman, Roman architecture. Same thing in 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 other parts of the world, in Ephesus, in Turkey, and of course, you go to the Forum in Rome and you see these these artifacts and columns there, but you're saying that was placed there and they were buried and unburied for a photo op. Tell me more. Okay. Now that you've mentioned Ephesus, I will tell you what made me look into Ephesus. Okay. Now, Jerusalem. Now, the word Jerusalem, there is many people who are saying, hey, Jerusalem is in the state of Utah. There are some people who say Jerusalem is in Mexico. There are some people who say Jerusalem is in Brazil. Some people say it's in South Africa. Some people say it's in India. Some people say it's in Germany. They say Jesus Christ was in Germany. Some people say Barcelona was Jerusalem. Other people say it's Edinburgh. Yes, some people say um, Jerusalem was in Japan. So um, we've got um, a problem here. There's many cities that claim to be Jerusalem. So then I thought I'd have a look at, uh, I looked at the Hebrew meaning first. Yes, and then um, the basic meaning is supposed to mean city of peace. But then when I had a look at Hebrew, uh, as I've said to you, um, Hebrew was, um, we can't seem to find the Hebrew language, that no Jewish people spoke it in history, but that they're saying Jewish people spoke it two or three thousand years ago, and they lost it, um, you know, in Babylon. Um, uh, they're telling us a, a strange history like this. And then they're saying this history, this language has just been brought back to life after two thousand years. So, uh, and... And um, Ben Yehuda says, he brought it back to life by, hey, I found the meanings in the Arabic language. And they changed the pronunciation. So I checked in Arabic, what does the word Jerusalem mean? Yes, it means the house or the area or the land or the city of peace. It's two words, Jar, Uslam. Yes, Jar or Dar, in modern Arabic it says Dar, dar or Dar, yes, Dar, Uslam, yes. So it just means city of Uslam. Yes, in modern pronunciation, Islam. Uslam, if you, if you want to say it in, in the Western way, Anglo-Saxon way, Jerusalem. Yes, so um, the word Uslam. So now there's many cities that claim this, and nobody is talking about it. Then Anatoly Fomenko, he write, writes it in his English translation. He says... There was many cities that, or many places that took this name. It's a generic name, basically meaning that are many anywhere where they established this system called Uslam or Islam, they called it Jerusalem. So if they had the system of Islam in Scotland, they will say this is Jerusalem. This is the city of Uslam or Islam. So this this created the question: Yes, um, is Islam older? than the man who they call the Prophet Muhammad, because there's many cities, yes, and the, um, for example, there's drawings from um, the Renaissance times that show that um, there's Gothic towns and cities in Europe, and they're just called Jerusalem, which just doesn't make sense, that there's the several of them. So, unless if there was a system already called Islam or Islam. Now, the Quran actually says that in the previous world order, there was a system called Islam. And he says that this system was established um, by Abraham and Moses. And then anybody who followed this system, basically, um, you know, uh, according to the history that's from the Quran, it basically tells you that um, these places became called Jerusalem. So, so um, the, thing, um, the thing is, what did that have to do with um, the Germans? Um, I was going to say uh, connect it, but I've forgotten. I've forgotten. I'm sorry. That's what okay. The That's you see. This is what happens when you when you deal with so many so many parts of our his hyphen story. Yeah. You lose yeah. your train of thought. But let me ask you this: many researchers. Uh, you remember uh, now? Uh, what was it? No, what was it? No, do you remember now? Because I had another question. 
Okay, go to the next one. I've okay. forgotten what that Yeah, it'll come okay. back to you, I'm sure. Many researchers have found that yes. world history between 1850 and 1950 has been falsified. Researchers have found that the true history of what happened during this time and why has been changed. Also, do you think they have concocted or invented or added 1,000 years to our history? Um, ah, I did not send you that book about the 1,000 years that they've added in history. Now, when we say 1,000 years, some people, some researchers, many people, now there's many people who've investigated this around the world. Some people say it's 900 years, 800 years, 700 years, 1,000 years. Now, the thing is, now the thing is, um, um, during the Renaissance, especially in the 16th century, people who worked for the Vatican, yes, um, actually turned around and mentioned the 1,000 years. Now, I should, I should have sent you this book, um, um, but I didn't send it to you, so... Um, that's okay. I'm going to open that book out now, and um, I'll show you. It's because the thing is, they actually tell you, historians actually tell you, this is official history, that, um, th that there is um, 1,000 years, yes, um, that um, the humanists or the people who worked with the Vatican, that they don't like this 1,000 years, yes? Um, that they don't like this 1,000 years. And the humanists mention it. For example, um, what do the humanists actually say? Um, I'm, I'm just going to go on to Britannica Encyclopedia, which is official history. What do they actually say? They, say, they call it the Middle Ages. Now, the thing is, the Italian humanists who were working with the Vatican, yeah, um, they gave it the name the Middle Ages, and they did it with invidious intent, is the word on Britannica Encyclopedia. Invidious basically means hate, hatred, yes? And what they did is um, they, they called this 1,000 years the Middle Ages. And um, the reason why they did it, and the exact words in Britannia Encyclopedia, it says, in a sense, the humanists invented the Middle Ages in order to distinguish themselves from it. Distinguish means separate. So the humanists invented the Middle Ages in order to separate themselves fr fr from it 1,000 years. So this is official history that official historians say. Um, Britannia Encyclopedia is, is one of the main main um, um, books that they use for the curriculum in, in many Western societies. societies. So, and who were the humanists? Humanists were government agents, same like CIA agents. They were all government agents working for the Vatican and for the people in power in Italy in the 15th, 16th century. So what they did is they called it the Middle Ages and they said this is the 1,000 years of the Middle Ages and we don't like it, basically. Yes. So they've actually said it and they said, um, it actually says that historians say they invented this term and they didn't like this history. So one, we can find an intent. Like, for example, when you're investigating a crime scene, you will have to see, hey, is, is there any evidence to support this? One, they even admit, hey, there's a 1,000-year problem. Then they say, hey, we don't like this 1,000 years. So 1,000 so, um, years, does it mean that it existed or it did not? The Middle Ages existed. but what? Uh, so the 1,000 years did exist, but what they've done is, is change the history that's within this. Now, for example, yes, some people think that um, Professor Anatoly Fomenko pointed this out, yeah? that um, historians in Europe, they cannot deny it. They turn around and say that, that Arabic was the language for education in Europe until, until the Renaissance. Arabic was, that um, people had to read Arabic books, etc., because the Arabs were supposedly, you know, a global empire, the caliphate, they called it. This is official history. And they say the Arabs um, translated Greek books, etc., into Arabic. And so people in Europe, they had to study and learn Arabic or otherwise they won't know anything. So now when the, so now when, um, the humanists came in the 15th, 16th century, yes, um, at that time they turn around and say, hey, we've lost ancient Greece and ancient Rome. We forgot about it in the 5th century um, when, um, after the fall of Rome. The whole world forgot. And we've now rediscovered all these things, all these ancient Roman manuscripts and Roman artifacts. We've just found everything a thousand years later. That, um, so, and they call that 1,000 years the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Dark Ages. Oh, by the way, I'm saying Middle Ages. Yeah, they call it dark. 
And why do they call it the Dark Ages? They say this period in history is dark because we don't know much about it. But um, now let me tell you what I found in this so-called Dark Ages. Yes, for example, you, you can find on uh, uh, in some Oxford University website um, a few years ago, they were trying to explain why there's millions of Arabic coins in Europe. Millions. We're not talking about a few. And um, the thing is, for example, you can forge history and make fake things. Even millions of coins, you can forge them. But these are Arabic coins are gold coins and silver. So if you're going to forge gold and silver coins, it's going to cost you a huge amount of money. <laughs> it's going to be too expensive. So now throughout Europe, we've got millions of Arabic coins that say there is no God except Allah. Yes, um, throughout Europe, which doesn't make sense. We're finding them in Norway, Sweden, in strange places in Northern Europe, thousands of them. Yes. And um, there's two types of coins that we found millions of in Europe. Yes. One are Roman coins and the other one is Arabic coins. So we know that there was Arabic coins in Europe, but now we've got another problem. The majority of the Arabic coins, where they found them in huge amounts throughout Europe, yeah, are actually 80% of them, 80% have been found in Europe, not in the Middle East or in Asia. The other 20% is divided throughout um, uh, um, North Africa, the Middle East and Asia. So it's, so, it's, so it's almost clear to say that this was a European currency that um that um this arabic civilization was european and then um i found um there's something called the masorettes that happened in europe and they claimed that the masorettes happened um at the beginning of the middle ages in because and um if you if you cancel the 1000 years then it means it happened at the end of the middle ages at the end of the renaissance and the, what the masorettes did is anything that's pronounced with the letter a was suddenly changed to the letter e like, for example, um, El Dorado is Al Dorado. Yes. Many people know this, any, anybody who studied it, that in Spanish, in French, and in all the other European languages, they changed it from A to E. Yes. So, um, so um, the thing is, um, when we have a look at Europa, Europa, that would be Arapa. And you just change it to the letter E. So Arapa was the la the Europeans were called Arapians. They are the original Arapians. Yes. And now if you go if you go to Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, and Libya, that's in North Africa, and they're calling them Arabs today. You go and talk to these people, they're going to say, "Oh no, we're Berbers. We're barbarians. Berber, bars. Yes. And the word bars, there's mysteriously another group of bars. Yes, who are called the Boers in South Africa." Which is strange. Yes, um, I found a connection between them in the North Africa. Um, um, the North African people call themselves Boers or Burr. En Francais, they say Burr or Burette or something to say. And um, in the South, they call them Boers. Yes. And um, so the thing is, the actual European civilization or Arabian civilization is the European civilization. Yes, I, um, I couldn't find it. Other researchers, let's say Anatoly Fomenko and many researchers, they've actually said, hey, this Arabian civilization or Arabian civilization is the European one. So are you saying, David, that, of course, if you remove the E and put an A instead of European, it will be Arabian? Yes. Interesting. That, that's it. That's all it was. Yes. And so uh, um, that's why we've got all these. When we say Ar uh, Arapian coins, they're European coins. So somebody's going to say, hey, this is the Arapian language. No, it's the European language. Um, the handwriting was changed. And um, the thing is, that I should, um, I'll send you some books. When you, when you write your handwriting in um, English, French, or these Latin alphabets, if you just reverse it, it looks exactly the same like Arabic. Yes. Let, let me just... It's uh, just uh, Arabic I'm, in reverse. I'm going to st start asking you questions left and right, because there's so much to discuss. What happened to the hats for men and women, especially in the United States? And you say women in the United States used to cover their hats like Muslim women do today. Why do very few people know women dressed in Europe and America the way they did in 1900? Yeah, and that's very shocking. <laughs> this is very shocking news. It's like, um, it's, very, it's something that, um, you know, it's hard to believe. 
it's like um you know um um if you if you showed people and said hey um you showed um people in um in um let's say New York or like, and you go there and say hey where are your ancestors from they'll say I heard they came from Scotland or from Ireland or from Holland or from Germany and say hey um do you know that when they got off the boat this is what they looked like and you could show photographs of the of the people and you and some people will turn around and say um eh are you sure yes so the thing is um I I think they've deliberately hidden this history and um, the thing is um there was a global dress code um, just um, 150 years ago that the women were dressed exactly the same like how these um, modern Muslim women are dressing today. Um, and there is a, a, everybody can see that um, I, I put it in my book that we can see how they've slowly changed society, slowly changed the dress code and they've encouraged it. Like um, um, what they did in World War II um, was to bring women on, on, onto the workforce during World War One and World War Two, to get them out of the houses, to make them come to work, and also how they brought all these children and other people to urbanised areas, and um, they're still doing the urbanisation projects now globally around the world. Like the United Nations, they're always speaking about it and saying, "Hey, we're going to take all our services to the countryside. Uh, what are you going to take there? We'll take vaccines, and we'll make sure that they've got internet connections so that they will know what the news and the media are saying." What about food? Uh, forget it. What about water? Uh, we don't know. Uh, they want vaccines, we'll give it them. Um, uh, they want internet? Yes, we'll make sure that we'll spend millions on internet bringing the wiring to bring it to all these third world villages. But food? Uh, no. And farming? Uh, no, we're not going to help them with this. So uh, um, I noticed that I'm doing the um, corona lockdowns, that um, because I've got friends all over the world, I communicated with them. And I, and I said to myself, I wish I was somewhere else right now. Because um, people were sending me videos. and saying, hey, I'm over here. I'm in Kazakhstan, in um, this small town village here. Nobody's wearing masks. Nobody's heard of um, this corona thing. They think it's a joke. <laughs> or um, people telling me, um, you know, uh, Morocco, you mentioned before. Yes, that's yes. one place uh, um, that um, people were showing me. and saying, yeah, there's nothing going on. Nobody believes it. And they said, there's a few policemen who went, who came to our village saying, hey, you've got to do this and have the vaccines. But nobody really cared. So the thing is, uh, um, um, I'll have to say, the new book that I've just done now called The Illuminati G Games, I've mentioned it in that book, how it's very important to them, to the people in power, to make sure that people get connected to what they call information technology, so that um, to their media, so that um, you get attached to it, so that then you will know this information, like like um, in England, in the United States, your COVID update. So, so that exactly. So that everything has to be curated. But we have to take our one and only break. How can people buy your books, learn more about your work, and then I'll tell you what's coming up next, folks. And you don't want to miss part two. How can people learn more about your work and get your books, David? And um, they could just type my name into Google, David Ewing Jr. Tartaria. I put them all under the title Tartaria. So it's simple to search for my books. By um, the way, I online. see I see all your books for sale at Amazon. Is that you selling them or somebody else? Um, I, I've sent them to um, an American company. Okay. And they've, they've put it in. My books are in Walmart, Waterstones. They're they're in China. My books are in twenty languages now, worldwide in twenty twenty languages. So it's like if you are in Turkey, it will be on um, um, D and R company if you are in china it will be in dang dang it's because i've given it to a company they've put it on there they've put it on google play google book fair enough waterstones um, um you know walmart i know it's in walmart in america it's in um, rakuten in japan kobo in canada so maybe google search for amazon first um wherever you're located it depends on your location so they're available everywhere in um 20 different languages fair enough great well folks just to let you know some of the things that are coming up. I want to discuss the Yesu or Yesu coins showing an I or a J where the one is supposed to be. And that's why I'm asking if they actually concocted a thousand years. And in reality, we might be just here a few hundred years. The orphan trains, the millions of skull and bones, skulls and bones found decorating cathedrals around the world. What would you do that? What would you decorate a cathedral full of 
thousands, and sometimes 20 to 50,000 skulls. Talk about the meaning of the word Tartar or Tartaria, the fatherland. And one, one last thing. I want you to tell me about the Bible and when the Germanic peoples of Europe and America learned the new languages and read the modern Bible. You say they clearly saw that their beliefs did not match what was reading the book known as the Bible. Quote, this is the reason why many people in the past rejected the modern Bible, not because they were atheists. Many of these people believed in, a, in one God, a creator of the universe, but they rejected the Bible because of what they found inside the book. End quote. What did they find inside the book? This and much more coming part two. One more hour with David Ewing Jr. This is Mel Hoslerick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.